Good evening and welcome to Queer Core on CKUT 90.3 FM or CKUT.ca on the web. This is the special Perversité edition of our show. It is Monday, August 10th. About 25 years ago, on July 16, 1990, a mostly queer after-hours party called Sex Garage, which was held in the old port of Montreal, was raided by police. The raid involved intense and homophobic police violence and a number of arrests. The reaction to these raids, which included a kissin' and a number of protests and demonstrations, would lead to a new relationship between queer people and the public, as well as the formation of the now no longer existent Diversité, Montreal's first LGBTQ Pride Festival. Tonight, we'll hear from Queer Corps alumni Poilo Deer and photographer Linda Don Hammond, whose photos were instrumental in holding the police accountable for their violence and publicizing the events that happened that night. So don't touch that dial. This is Queer Core on CKUT 90.3 FM or CKUT.ca on the web. And we're going to start by putting you back in the vibe of those sex garage parties with The Boy Who Couldn't Keep His Clothes On, the Banji Girlfriend Beats remix by the Pet Shop Boys. Stay tuned. Oh no, you don't. You ain't dancing for all these men. I thought you said you quit that. Hi, my name is Puello Deer. I was one of the organizers for the big party that took place after a big demo that took place after the sex garage uh, kissing in front of Station 25 and the bar raid that took place two days before. So if we want to put Sex Garage into uh, today's perspective, it would probably feel like pomp. Okay. But without the bar license. Back in the day, and still today, but back in the day, uh, bars were segregated. So you had your gay bars, you had your girl bars, and you know you had Cafe Clio and maybe L'Entrepot, which did drag shows. Um, so, and along linguistic lines as well, to bars that you'd consider like, oh, that's where the, all the Anglos go, and then the French bars. Sex Garage, what made Sex Garage really unique was that it brought everybody together. It brought all these different communities together, uh, university students, people like me who were like kind of like street hustler kids, um, gay, straight, lesbian, transgender, drag queens. It was a melting pot of like the city's counterculture, if you like. Um, and they were awesome. And you needed to know about them you either got a flyer from a friend or you'd be out drinking and you'd hear word that, oh, Nicholas Jenkins, who was the pe- person who did these parties, was having a party usually somewhere in old Montreal in some abandoned building or warehouse, um, you know, and great DJs, liquor, extras, contortionists, strippers, um, Drag queens, the the gamut of, you know, nightlife. 
And you probably, like I said, you, you probably feel like something like pomp today. Like that kind of like energy and vibe and a mix of everyone. My name's uh, Linda Dawn Hammond and I'm a photographer from formerly of Montreal. Looking at the invite the other day and I realized that I, I missed uh, the actual performance that they'd done, which is a shame. You know, that would have been probably interesting to photograph, but I must have arrived after 1230 because it was over. That part was over. Yeah, there was some. Yeah, there was something going on there earlier, but I mean, I'd miss that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I was at, I was actually at a bar called Les Arts, which was uh, one of my my favorite bars on Saint Denis Street, and and that was also you know that was a very open, uh, inclusive uh, place to party, and you know people were always interested, and I and I photographed that as well. I don't know if I mentioned like it's it wasn't just. Um, People there weren't just gay people as well, you know. There were people that were very gay positive, I suppose, right? Mm-hmm. Like, but you know, club people. Anybody, anybody that uh, probably didn't fit into, let's say, um, you know, the straight party scene, or or maybe wanted to uh, be part of a gay scene that was more inclusive, you know, yeah. uh, that you know, because there were there were like lesbians and and gay men and uh, and as I said, like um, you know. Uh, I, I wouldn't really classify them as straight, but you know what I mean. You know, like club people, kind of almost like New York style club people, which is which is what what Nicholas was going for because he felt like, you know, I think that um, you know I don't want to speak for him, but uh, from what I what I've read, uh, he stated that um, you know he felt like Montreal needed something like you know like he had experienced in New York, and so he wanted to bring that uh, to Montreal on this night. We're having a party, and it's a great time. And usually, usually we uh, Nicholas back in the day, and people who did bars, gay bars, would always have a lookout for the cops. And most of the time, the cops would show up. If you were doing like an after-hours party, you'd get rid of the cash. The police would come and do the rounds and just close the place down. But on that night, it got violent. They were aggressive, they didn't have badges, um, and they were provoking. So in terms of what set this apart, you would say the violence is what set this apart from a lot of the other raids that were happening? Absolutely, Yeah. absolutely. And the big difference is that there was visuals. Somebody was there with a camera. Otherwise, if Linda Don Hammond hadn't been there, there would have been no proof. It would have been our word against theirs. And it would have been just another typical, hateful, violent, oppressive police raid on a disenfranchised community. Um, and the difference was we, many young people were in school, in university. We had become media savvy. We were in the midst of the AIDS crisis. So we were mobilizing. We grew up, some of us, not believing that queerness was something to be ashamed of but something is, that's part of our integrity, is that the word in English? But 
part of ourselves. And so I don't think the police understood what they were provoking that night. I think they just thought that, you know, push a few people around, you know, bring a couple of people into holding cells, give people fines, you know, abuse people verbally, physically. And they probably thought night as usual and get away with it. And that night they happened to pick on the wrong kids. The photos capturing the violence. Right. Capturing what these men and women in uniform were doing to our community when we weren't harming anyone. Mm -hmm. We were having a party. No one was killed. No one was injured. And they came in and decided that they were going to be abusive. And they, like I said, they picked on the wrong people that night. And we mobilized. All right. So let's see. Um, I was invited to uh, to attend a party by Nicholas Jenkins, who was the person who organized a uh, sex garage party. And he used to have parties in Montreal, um, which always had really interesting names like Candy Bar <clears throat> and Sex Garage. And... Um, he uh, he knew that I was interested in photographing uh, just gay and punk subcultures, and you know being part of that scene myself. And so he had invited me to come photograph it. Um, and uh, I actually showed up probably a bit late. Uh, the party started at around eleven thirty, and I showed up half night, maybe around one o'clock in the morning, with some friends. We'd been at another club. And uh, and we showed up, and um, nothing nothing particularly different was happening at that party. It was, you know, it, it definitely no reason for the police to be called. Um, there were some there were some rumors afterwards that the police had claimed that uh, Nicholas himself had uh, had uh, asked for the police uh, to come because the party was out of hand. But uh, this was all untrue. Um, it was in it was in a warehouse district, and there weren't any neighbors, so there hadn't been any noise complaints either. Right. <clears throat> Sorry, my throat is still going. Anyway, uh, at one point of the evening, uh, I've been photographing just people dancing and partying and things like that. And at one point uh, in the evening, uh, suddenly we were told that the police had uh, had been there, and they told everyone to leave, except that nobody saw the police, and we were kind of questioning whether. That was even true because you know there had been, um, you know there had been performances earlier that night, and so some people were even suggesting maybe it was just a performance and this, you know, there, these weren't real police. But then another rumor started to circulate that uh, that a man uh, had been beaten up between uh, the cars in front. He had tried to return to the uh, to the uh, loft space to retrieve his coat. His name is Bruce Buck, and he had been taken between the cars by the police and beaten really badly and then arrested as well. And some friends of mine had witnessed this permanent loss space. Uh, and so when we finally realized, yes, we have to leave, the lights came on and, and uh, people started to exit through the door, uh, we already knew something had gone on, that the police had injured someone. And then we were faced with uh, maybe 30 or 40 police in front of the doors, which 
it's really quite a surprise. It was it was quite excessive. Mm-hmm. You know, like you know, we didn't quite understand why they were there uh, because you know there had been no upsets or anything in the party, and you know, um, so the people in the people at the party who had exited decided that that this was um, this was likely uh, a homophobic. Uh, reaction on the part of the police, uh, and that was kind of verified when they started um, saying things to certain people in the group, like, uh, you know, stroking their matraque and saying, uh, I bet you like this and uh, you want this, you know, things like this, right? Mm-hmm. So obviously, you know, there were some, some sexual connotations behind their, um, you know, behind this uh, uh, attack, I suppose. Um, at this point, they were just, you know, kind of just taunting us, and, and people responded in like, uh, people weren't taking it, and they just sort of stood there and, and uh, you know, so, you know, basically said, what's your problem, and uh, we're proud to be gay, and, you know, uh, and, uh, the, you know, and the police um, at this point still had on their identification, and, and they, uh, they didn't respond very well to two men in the group who uh, basically mooned them, like showed their asses to the cops. And that seemed to really trigger uh, a very bizarre reaction because they started getting a bit more organized and they kind of conferred with each other and and they uh, formed um, more of a, like a little um, kind of a battalion kind of uh, uh, assault on us. And they started moving us towards... Um, I go to Sharon Beaver Hall Hill, uh, away from the warehouse space. And they, they'd also, we noticed they'd arranged their um, vehicles, the car, you know, the, uh, uh, the police vehicles kind of block certain exits so you couldn't get to your cars or your bicycles if they were in one area of the street. Mm-hmm. You know, they kind of were trying to, uh, I, I guess now they call it kettling, uh, there, but there wasn't that term in those days, but they were basically trying to push us towards uh, the area they wanted us to go to, which was the hill, you know. Um, and uh, then they started removing their identification badges in front of us, and, and that was uh, that was chilling because as soon as they did that, you knew that uh, whatever it was that they had in mind for us wasn't, wasn't uh, actually legal because I don't believe that you remove your identification badges, uh, you know, if you're planning on, you know, yeah, so that was that was the big indication, really, that things were going down <laughs> that were not going to be very pleasant for us, yeah. and uh, it just it just actually made people even more angry, you know, like in the group, uh, you know, that, and and people didn't move because they thought, well, what is this? We have a right to be here, you know, uh, and the police um, just you know suddenly gave uh, and like they had. Certain police officers were still wearing their badges, and those were the ones I suppose were in charge. And one of them even had a megaphone and was directing the other ones. And they just suddenly charged at us and started beating people. And they were, they were, I don't even know how many police were there because they were all over the place. I mean, they were, they probably surrounded us, you know, without us realizing. Um, and they were in the parking lots and they were chasing people across parking lots. And, and uh, I was on the, I was on the hill. Um, and uh, I had already shot like two rolls of film earlier, like in the party, and 
and uh, at the previous place that I'd been, uh, you know, partying at. And and I was uh, I hand over my first two rolls of film to a friend of mine, Daryl, who um, had volunteered to do this. He was on a bicycle, and he said he would stay in the vicinity, and if I needed him, he would rescue my camera, right? Because we knew that the police would most likely be after it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so you know, because I was the only photographer there, as far as I knew. I didn't, I didn't see anyone else at the time, and and the police, of course, uh, had been watching me because every time I photographed them, my flash would go off, and it would it would indicate my position. Mm-hmm. You know, he started uh, pushing us up the hill, and right. um, and you know, at this point, uh, fortunately, I had already given away two rolls of film, right, to okay. my friend on, there on the bicycle. And, uh, you know, I was, um, I was wondering to myself at that point why they hadn't taken me down because they were starting to grab people and, you know, and obviously I knew they were going to be after the, the photographs. They had been staring at me when I'd been shooting them and, you know, and they were obviously angry about it. But I think that I, I do believe that what they thought was we can take her at any point. So might as well let her shoot, and then we'll have pictures inside the party as well, right? Right. Because I think they used to use things like that to identify people who would frequent uh, gay bars and, you know, just, um, you know, and after-hours places. So, you know, that would have been of value to them. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't going to let them have it. Absolutely not. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, so we'd already protected two roles. And then um, when they started, I, I was photographed the shot, probably my most famous one, of, of Wendy. That was the one that was in both of the newspapers, Wendy Stevens. And uh, she was um, she she was trying to leave, and they had tripped her, and she had fallen on her face. And she told me at the time, uh, like afterwards, that, that they had whispered in her ear, get up, run, run. And, you know, uh, and she had tried to scramble up, but they had taken their the sticks, and they had tripped her again before she had a chance to catch herself, and so she'd fallen on her face repeatedly. So that's how her face got so, you know, bashed up from falling on the ground. And and, and I thought that was particularly sadistic, Mm -hmm. you know, this account. Anyway, anyway, so I was photographing her, and uh, and then uh, they um, sort of jumped on one man that they'd gotten hold of, and they were in a big pileup. I was standing only a few feet away because I have a wide-angle lens, and you know, with my with my dying flash, my flash at that point, um, the batteries had been dying. It made it very difficult to photograph. So I had to keep wait, waiting for them to recharge. Anyway, um, so I uh, I was photographing this guy in a pileup, and and there was a couple of other women that I knew. Uh, one of them was on her knees uh, with a stick at her head, and the other one was, um, you know, standing there, and the police were confronting her, and they looked really, had the strangest expression. Uh, they they almost looked afraid, like part of, like some of, maybe the, maybe the reaction from the police was also that they were, they were a little bit intimidated or, or fearful of the people that they were attacking, too, you know? Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, and and there was and in the corner of that photograph, which which always gets cut out by the media because they think it's not of any value, is on the very far left side is a man like another cop with a stick, and he's looking at me with this 
this opportunistic look on his face. Oh, <laughs> I, I only realized afterwards because uh, that always gets cropped out, but when I looked at the entire negative, I, I, realized, I thought to myself, well, he was very close to me, and somebody came up behind me just after I shot that, and they knocked my legs out from from behind, you know, like they hit my knees, mm. so I fell forward and i and i didn't I didn't even realize I'd been hit because it was dark, and you know, and I was concentrating on shooting, and you know I didn't realize uh, until somebody I, witnesses told me afterwards, I thought I thought I tripped, but then I what did I trip on? I don't, I don't remember tripping, you know, why am I falling? I was just basically why am I falling and um and then. Uh, somebody also told me that they hit me across uh, my hands, like around the chest area where I had my camera, and uh, and I, you know, again, I didn't even notice that. If they had, if people hadn't told me, I don't think I would have realized exactly what was going on. It was all very confusing. But um, I knew that the police were about three or four feet away from me. That I knew, and they were beating people. So obviously, I I wanted to protect my camera. And fell really you know, awkwardly on my arm uh, um, to try to protect it so it wouldn't break because because um, especially with analog cameras they they're like full metal and they're really powerful but at the same time if the back had flipped open the negatives would have been lost like it would have been exposed right? right so so I had to protect that camera when I fell and then and then I was like kind of lying on I kind of twisted away from the cops I was lying on the ground and I thought okay I get it now away from one of your camera. It's a box. It's a box with film in it and I you know, my beautiful Nikon. And and I threw it up the hill. I just kind of like like a lot of along the ground so it wouldn't, you know, get too damaged. Um so as again I didn't want it to pop open. And and I just threw the camera up the hill towards all these people with feet running past me and I just shouted the grab and run uh, to anybody who was up ahead and, you know, seriously hoped it wasn't going to be a cop that heard it. And as I did that, turns out that um, the flash had been dislodged uh, from probably the hit that it took, you know, when I was holding it, mm-hmm. you know, when the cop hit me across the hand. Anyway, it, it, but, you know, so it, it knocked the uh, this big flash that was on the camera uh, off, and the flash went flying to the to the right as I threw my camera to the left, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and the police uh, left the guy. They were all jumped on, like they, you know, they were all in this huddle on top of this guy, and they all like abandoned him, and they all jumped on my flash, <laughs> which gave me the opportunity uh, to run at that point. And um, but but just before I ran, I was you know kind of lying on the ground, looking up ahead after I'd thrown the camera, thinking, "Oh my God." Uh, I wonder if I'll ever see it again, you know? Yeah. And and I knew that the most important photographs were in that camera because those were the very last ones where they really started hitting people, right? Mm-hmm. You know? And uh, and then I saw somebody up ahead, and and uh, he was smiling at me, and I was like thinking, why, why are you smiling? <laughs> yeah. You know, because I didn't think it was a very funny expression. Um, but then I saw him pointing, and he was pointing at my Mickey Mouse strap. Uh, camera strap that was on my camera, uh, which was really, you know, it was it was built from that distance because it was such a ridiculous item, <laughs> the little Mickey Mouse faces, and um, and he was pointing to it. And he didn't show the camera; he showed the strap, right? You know, I recognized it, and I, oh, I was so happy. So I just scrambled up and I ran 
for my camera and he handed it back and then and then just as he handed it back Daryl showed up on the bicycle my savior and uh and he and I handed him the camera and he said I'll meet you at your place and so uh, he took off with it and <laughs> you know because I didn't want to be caught you know because the police obviously knew who I was and right. you know by this point and uh you know if if they had managed to get their hands on me at that point then I didn't want them to get hands on the camera as well right anyway so that was good and uh, made it home safely, and um, and then we took the uh, a friend of mine showed up, and we went together to uh, La Presse, and they they developed and printed the photograph, and, uh, and then after that we took it to the English press, we took it to the Gazette, right, and yeah, and it was published the next day, right? Yeah, yeah, they didn't give us front page or anything because obviously we weren't worth that, but um, we got like fifth page from the press and. Third page, I think, from the Gazette, um, and the Gazette had actually hesitated printing them at all because uh, because they were saying that they didn't have much room because um, the Oka crisis was happening, right? And they were saying, you know, it's taking up all their pages, and uh, they and you know, the Gazette actually considered not publishing it because they didn't think it was maybe of uh, newsworthy. <laughs> you can believe that. Right. I, I was I was really shocked. When they when they suggested that yeah. they weren't you know going to print it, so um, you know we uh, kind of my friend and I we were just sort of talking about what had happened and she mentioned that Mission Twenty Five had been one of the major perpetrators of this attack, which was a surprise because uh, Station Twenty Five wasn't from that area. This you know we're down in Old Montreal. Station Twenty Five is located up near Concordia. Um, so we decided. Oh, well, anyway, I came up with this kind of absurd idea at the time, I suppose. But um, I, I, I had said to her, obviously, Station 25, I mean, if they were there, you know, this was... And we knew it was a homophobic attack. Uh, and I, I said, well, what we should do is we should have a loving in front of Station 25. And that would be... that would be. Uh, I, I also knew that, I mean, if, if we did do this, that uh, that would attract media attention, and you know we were. I was trying to figure out how to get like that to print these pictures, right? <laughs> you know, and think this story was of value, and uh, so we phoned up one girl and we said to her, "Hey, if we have a love in tomorrow in front of Station Twenty Five, will you be there?" And she said, "Sure, I'll be there." So, on the basis of this, myself, this other person who was with me, and this girl, this unknown girl on the phone, I told the Gazette. Oh, oh, by the way, we're having a love tomorrow in front of Station 25. And, uh, and they immediately changed their tune. It was like, oh, well, in that case, uh, oh, there's going to be follow-up. Well, <laughs> well, we'll run the story. <laughs> and uh, they said, you don't even have to organize the media. We'll, we'll organize, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll tell all the rest of the media, you know? Yeah. Which was very handy. Because, you know, things like that, of course. Didn't take time. <laughs> so anyway, so that was perfect. Uh, they they went with the story. Um, so that was that was basically how the loving came about. And 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 then there was the problem that there were only three of us. I had left Sex Garage because I'd left with two boys, and we were going off to have a party somewhere else. And. Um, and in those days, we did not have email. We didn't have Facebook or social media. We had phone trees. And I got a call, I guess, about early, early what was it, Sunday morning, that 
there was going to be a demonstration in the village on Sunday night, and I had to be there, and I hadn't been to bed. Um, and I was with uh, <laughs> I was with my boyfriend at the time, who was a dealer, and he had wanted nothing to do with it. And I had participated in the year before we had the fifth annual AIDS conference in Montreal, when ACT UP New York came to town with activists from Montreal and Toronto and stormed the stage at the opening ceremony. And that changed my life. And to hear what had happened at Sex Garage, I just knew that I had to be there, that I had to participate, that I had to stand up to violence and oppression. And then by the time I woke up, um, uh, people had already uh, had protests and been organizing and things like that. And, and, I, and I heard that there was a meeting at Standing, which was a lesbian bar that was on Ontario Street. So I went to, you know, and people were trying to um, decide what to do next. So I went there, and that was on, that was on the uh, Sunday night. And, you know, nobody really knew me at this meeting. Um, you know, I sort of had to sort of stand up and say, well, hello, you know, mm-hmm. um, I'm the photographer uh, who was shooting it. Probably nobody knew about it yet because the pictures hadn't even come out yet, right? Mm-hmm. You know, they weren't printed yet. And, uh, and I just said... Um, you know, I'm really, you know, I'm sorry to have to tell you this, but uh, I promised the Gazette that we're having a love in front of Station 25 tomorrow at noon. <laughs> you know? And then people were kind of like, some some people were, were kind of saying, well, we're, but we're angry. We don't want to make out, <laughs> right? <laughs> and I was like, well, you know, once you get there, you can do what you want. You don't have to make out. But the fact is, is that the Gazette's promised um, to arrange for all the media to be there, so might as well use it, right? So I went home that night and had no idea if um, any more than three people were going to show up. And uh, and it was the next morning. Uh, next morning, I, w- I woke to a radio interview uh, in French, uh, and I was you know quite surprised. But it turns out that the Gazette had actually given my phone number to this radio station, and they asked me to explain in my own words uh, what had happened uh, in, at Sex Garage. So I, you know, I went on as best as I could and, you know, described the situation and I kind of, I suppose, made a little fun of the cops for jumping on my flash, thinking of my camera. <laughs> and, and then and then I had to leave because we were having the press. And I didn't get to hear the rebuttal by the, um, the representative from the police, but he, um, I heard it later because somebody had taped it for me went on about, uh, I heard what Madame Hamon was said, and, you know, it was on the French, right? and, and, and basically um, almost called me a liar and <laughs> came up with some other version of events, which, you know, was more complimentary to the police, I suppose. But I had also said that, that I did not believe, I, I said, well, you know, the police will do these things in the dark when there's no witnesses, when they believe there are no witnesses, but they wouldn't dare do this in broad daylight. <laughs> And like so, they heard say that, and and decided to prove me wrong, <laughs> because um, because the loving turned into uh, something that I really didn't expect. Um, so we went, so we went with our little dime bags, and um, and sat in the middle of the village on a Sunday night, and watched these young people, men and women take leadership roles 
who were like my sex dates and my drinking buddies and seeing them take leadership roles was really galvanizing and was really um, a, a chapter of growing up, certainly in my life. Mm-hmm. So that, that was Sunday night. And it had a like really festive atmosphere. We're sitting in the village, you know, drag queens were coming out and entertaining and, you know, it was a mix of French English and a potpourri of like Montreal. And the police came and negotiated with some of the people who had taken leadership roles and said that if you disperse these people, we will meet with you tomorrow, Monday, in, at Station 25. So we dispersed, we went out and partied, people mobilized in those spars, came up with strategies. I think the idea of a kiss-in started happening earlier in the evening for Station 25, and so it was a kiss-in. We were gonna do a kiss-in in front of Station 25, which in my recollection of that time uh, was very close to the whole building at Concordia. To uh, to experience, um, you know, for me, because and all the media, you know, all the media showed up. We had like every, you know, radio, television, everybody. And, um, you know, and it started off really uh, quite peaceful and happy and people were making out and, it's almost like a joyous kind of carnival atmosphere, you know. And then uh, it just suddenly all changed, and the police that uh, like they uh, allowed a, a rumor to circulate about how they were going to take us down, what the strategy they were going to use specific, <laughs> and people realized that uh, it was about to happen again, okay, you know, yeah. in broad daylight, right? Yeah, and. Uh, and they, uh, anyway, and they, they um, like about 250 of us there, and they, and we, we sat down and we, you know, linked arms, and uh, at one point, uh, you know, we, we started saying, pas de violence, pas de violence, and, uh, you know, um, and it became apparent that no matter what we said or what, you know, the fact that we weren't doing anything um, violent, uh, they were going to attack us, and they did. They put on these, like, flat jackets, and this time uh, they put on latex gloves uh, to protect their hands, or leather gloves, thinking that probably that we had AIDS, you know. Mm. They hadn't done this, by the way, at Sex Garage. There's some rumors to the fact that they'd been wearing latex gloves then, but I think that they, no, they hadn't thought of it until the next day, <laughs> you know. Right. Um, anyway, and then they, uh, they took us row by row, and 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 started beating us with their clubs and you know and I was in the third row and uh, and it was terrible to uh, be sitting there and and I kind of felt responsible too because this had been my you know my brilliant idea that <laughs> the love in <laughs> you know I didn't think that the police would respond in a violent manner again right. you know right yeah but they did anyway and then and then uh, forty seven of us got arrested. I think actually 48 originally, but they, one of them, they dropped the charges because uh, 
uh, his name was Edward Cook. Um, you might have read about him. Uh, he had been seen, uh, like, you know, they had, they had filmed him, TV crews, uh, being dragged in by his feet, blowing kisses and being sweet, you know, um, <laughs> as he got dragged up the steps to Section 25. And then as soon as they got him in there, they uh, started beating him up. And and they uh, also kicked him in the groin, and he almost he almost lost a testicle. And the, and they mm. would not call the ambulance. Like uh, people were really upset in the in that station twenty five, like in the holding cells, because we knew that he was still there and he was in pain. And they should have called the ambulances, but they kept looking for the journalists and saying, "Have they gone yet?" And they waited for the journalists to leave uh, from the station before. They, uh, they, took him, they took him away to the hospital. Mm. Well, historically, the relationship between the police and the LBGTQ community was never, was never strong. Um, you know, there were bar raids, regular bar raids. Uh, before our generation of the early 90s and the 80s, when they did bar raids and they they arrested you, your name would appear in the newspapers. Um, so we were of a generation where we were less intimidated by that kind of provocation. Um, so not good. And, you know, they, they had raided uh, saunas and there were fires and people died and... So not good. good. It wasn't a healthy relationship. You know, it was always the morality squad. Uh, In the 70s, uh, Mayor Doré did a sweep of the city to clean up uh, the gays out of downtown. There's a history of how downtown, the gay village was Peel and St. Catherine back in the day. And it was, that's how the village moved into the east was because of those sweeps that took place for the Olympics. so the long-winded answer to your question is that the relationship with the police was non-existent, violent, and oppressive. Okay. Yeah, well, um, you know, I was I was primarily part of the punk scene, right, mm-hmm. in Montreal at that time. Um, but uh, the punk scene also encompassed people that were gay. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seemed like um, both milieus attracted, uh, you know, people who wanted to express themselves without being judged mm-hmm. within our groups, uh, which overlapped, uh, you know, when one was allowed to do that, right? And, and the uh, the police in the past had, had actually already given us quite a bit of trouble, like within the punk scene. Uh, they, had, they had attacked uh, guys in our group who they had in wearing dresses, you know, sometimes they would wear skirts and things like that, right? And they had, they were taken into parking lots and acts, and uh, and I, I knew some women actually being uh, sexually assaulted uh, by the police uh, for uh, um, for doing graffiti. So uh, so we didn't really have um, much trust for the police at that point. As a matter of fact, a f- the friend of mine who witnessed from the other lost space uh, Bruce Buck being uh, being attacked. Uh, between the cars, uh, I was surprised when he didn't come forward as an eyewitness, uh, you know, in his defense, and he wouldn't do it, and none, of, and none of the others would either, because they didn't have any faith that they would receive any justice right. in the in Montreal at that point, you know. Yeah. 
especially being both punk and gay. Even me being a rent boy and party boy, I was media savvy. I was certainly interested in, you know, uh, I would, I'd been stripping in New York and fell into the community center and into an ACT UP meeting, and I was like, wow. And I stumbled into the AIDS conference because I saw, like, all these hot guys going somewhere, and I wondered where they were going. And I had my bike, and there were all these tables set up outside of the Montreal uh, Palais des Congrès, so that was 89. So, whoa, wow, these people look like me. They sound like me. And they're not taking bullshit. And they're not ashamed of who they are. So I think that was a difference, you know. I wasn't the only person in town that let live that experience. There were queer kids in university taking courses that were cutting edge in the day. Um, so people were more politicized and not afraid to have their names in the newspaper. And then to have a kiss in and then see the cops come out wearing their gloves and batons and, uh, you know, uh, I'm going to say military gear because the name escapes me of what that, all that stuff looks like. Um, and then to see people in my community getting beaten up, getting pulled by their hair, getting thrown into paddy wagons, you know, I got like pulled away from the girl I was with and you know, it's silly. It's silly compared to what was happening to other people during, during that demo, but dropping my glasses, being dragged away by a cop and I go to get my glasses and he steps on them and I look up and he's just got this like weird smile like fuck you faggot. That's how I interpreted it. You know, and like I told you earlier, and, um, we had all our meetings in bars. Even me. There was a bar on Prince Arthur and Saint Dominique called Meccano and we'd use that as our headquarters. And um and a couple of other bars and we'd meet and you know, all of it was being filmed. We were at the community center in the village. It was like near where Priap is upstairs. And they didn't know what to do with us. The community center didn't want us there. They were like, oh my God, those Anglo radicals. And we weren't really because there were, we were a mix. We were a mix. Um, but it was certainly the Anglos who were like the most boisterous and the most adamant and uh because we had we had this american concept of act up and queer nation and so we had we had something to go by um and i think uh quebecois deal with things more internally within within the system so, but it was it was hard for the, the community center management to kick us out. Um, so that so that demo happened, and then we organized again, and we did more demos. Um, things get sketchy for me after that because I was partying and doing my rent boy thing, and 
Um, but I remember sitting in a meeting and they were organizing a big city demonstration that was going to go through by City Hall and they wanted to organize a party afterwards. And because I'd done uh, Gala de Gilda, this voguing ball uh, at Les Arts on Saint-Denis, um, because I had done this, they looked to me to organize it. And there was a chap that I've lost touch with, but his name was Spikey. And he and I uh, got together and then we had this uh, woman called named Suzanne Downs and another woman and we were kind of the committee to do the outdoor Parc La Fontaine stage event and um, and we did it and you know no one wanted to be associated with gays back then no one wanted to be associated with like diseased pariah um, I can only speak for myself as like a gay white man. I'm not going to pretend to speak for other communities. I can only speak about my experience. Um, but they could. And then we had, we, Spikey and I decided that we were going to call the offices of La 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 Human Steps. And perhaps to you that doesn't really mean much. But back in the day, they were like a world famous dance troupe. And there was a woman in that dance troupe called Louise Le Cavalier which was like this icon of international dance. Like these bleach blonde dreads. She was like the punk version of Madonna on a stage and she'd fly through the air. And so we called and we thought, well, why not? And they said, yes. And I thought, oh, wow, La 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 is coming. And this was big for us. And, um, and I thought, oh, I guess they'll just send a couple of dancers and we're setting up our stage on the Sunday when we're doing the event. And here comes Louise in all her dreaded bleachness. And we were like, wow, that's really awesome. And, you know, and then we had this alternative rock band that was quite big at the time called Boot Sauce. And their record label didn't want them to perform. And so they changed their name to Toe Jam there was no way that they weren't going to participate. And then we had uh, a, a woman that I loved a lot and I've lost touch with people over the years, but Santana, and she was just like this Latin infused musician that was just with drums and, and, and uh, air instruments like trumpets and trombones it's just extraordinary and you know and seeing and seeing people come in marching and coming into the park and we had a dj uh de la gautier who was djing that and he's still around montreal today djing and them coming in and dance music happening and dancing in the park and this just like wild scene of like people dancing and dust everywhere and just lost in all of this like sun and heat and grass and and the type you smoke and and all this dust just gave it like this orgiastic sense of community tribal um and that was 
my experience of Sex Garage. I had made friends with people who were in ACT UP. I was always kind of like out on the fringes. Um, and I had met, when I did this event, uh, Gala de Gilda, with a few friends, I went to this guy who did the show that preceded Queer Core called The Homo Show. His name was David Shannon, and he was one of the leaders. And we're at Meccano, and I'm as high as a kite. And through his work with during Sex Garage, he got hired to do the CBC, had to leave the homo show. And we're st sitting at the bar, and he says, well, you should take over the homo show. I, what? I don't know what, how to do radio. I don't know how to do, I think you'd be great. You should do it. So I did, you know, and I was in the throes of a pretty wild drug addiction and I left my uh, drug dealer boyfriend and still needed to do my drugs. And here I was in a community of like young people that were thinking about things and that were exploring issues and that were exploring music and it threw me into this world that I didn't think I belonged in. And so I stuck around the station and then I felt that homo show was like too soft. And so we should call it queer core and, and change the name without asking anybody at the station, just like one day, hi, you're listening to queer core. And somebody from the programming committee said, um, uh, Puello, uh, these things have to be discussed. You can't just, I'm like, oh, well, and I didn't know. And I still don't know. I still do things and, oh, wow, I didn't know there was a process. Oh, there's process? Um, that's just my being a lone wolf and did that. And I, I think the AIDS conference and definitely Sex Garage shaped the rest of my life after that because I owe so much to this radio station, CKUT, and to Queer Core. And so I didn't know what the beep I was doing. Um, so I brought in somebody. I, well, I shouldn't say brought in because I don't remember how we connected, but this, uh, this man who's gone on to be an author, Peter Dubay, and I would produce, I felt very comfortable producing and lining up great interviews. And, you know, I mean, we had Dennis Cooper and we had Diamanda Gallas and we had Karen Findlay and we had like, you know, I would like find out the long distance code when that mattered. And for CKUT and I'd make all these phone calls and then they'd be like, whoa, Puelo, what are you doing? Oh, uh, I don't know. Um, you know, it's, um, and so, um, and so Sex Garage, that's all due to Sex Garage. I, so I did this show, Queer Core, did it for three years. And, um, then I went to San Francisco Pride through CKUT. It was a, a campus community radio conference in Vancouver. And a few of us from here went and we decided that we were going to go stay a few, a couple, I think it was even a couple of weeks in San Francisco during Pride. My first Pride in San Francisco got picked up by like 
some hot guy on a motorcycle in the parade who just kind of like looked at me on a scaffolding and like, come here, little boy. And I went. And I was like, I couldn't believe that Montreal didn't have pride. And we had a pride that was, um, you know, organized in the village, 100 people. They didn't want drag queens. They didn't want leather people. They didn't want ass bearing. They don't, you know, and I was shocked because that's what I was like, whoa, well, that's who we are. <laughs> that's who we are. Why would we want to like get rid of that? What's that about? I don't want to be normal. I don't want to fucking be like anybody else. I want to be like what we are. Um, so I went to San Francisco Pride, learned a lot, and then I went to the March on Washington in 93, and that cemented my desire to have a Pride Parade in Montreal. And came back and hooked up with John Custodio, and John Custodio wrote this manifesto, and we did like a co-op. There was a co-op at that time of like a few people from Concordia, and you know we wrote a manifesto for this for what became Diversité, um, and we did our first parade. No one in town believed that it could happen. People were taking bets about how many people would show up. That that set the precedent for diversity. Diversity changed a lot of things. In 2007, Diversité repositioned itself as a general arts and culture festival, no longer holding a parade. In response, Fierté Montreal began organizing one, and in the same year, Perversité formed as a result of a small workshop about queers and anarchism held at the Anarchist Book Fair. Since then, we have become an annual, collaboratively organized Pride Festival that seeks to provide a critical and accessible series of events aimed to bring back the radical underpinnings to Pride festivals. Our festival began last week on Thursday, August 6th, and will continue until August 15th, this Saturday. You can check out more about our programming on perversité.org. A number of Linda Don Hammond's photos, including some never before seen by the public, can be seen at an exhibition being held outside at Place Emilie Gemelay, August 12 through 15, as well as a love-in that is planned for this Sunday, August 16, uh, with the meeting place and time to be announced. We'll share the event on our Facebook page. Until next week, this has been another edition of Queercore on CKUT 90.3 FM. Don't touch that dial.